Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. I want to start this morning with a quick thought experiment. So I want to ask you a question. I want you to consider the answer to the question. You don't have to necessarily answer out loud, or you don't have to necessarily share your answer with your neighbor. But I want you to think about it. We're going to kind of go over it a little bit together here at the beginning. Do you think, there's really no right or wrong answer. I mean, there might be considering your opinion on the answer to the question. But, but do you think that most people are doing their best just in general, in life? That the average person in general wakes up in the morning and throughout the day does the best that they can do with whatever amount of strength they have that day, whatever, whatever tools they have because of the, the circumstance or situation that they've been in. When this question usually gets asked to groups, the split is around 50-50. Some people say yes, and others say, heck no. Have you met people? People we're talking about? You're asking whether people do their best? Usually there's a slight majority of people who say lean towards the no. People aren't doing their best. Um, but opinions are pretty strong on, on both sides. And there's a, a, a thinker who's gotten popular in the last few years through TED Talks she gave and a Netflix special she has now, Renee, um, uh, Renee Brown. Um, and... Uh, she, her, her research illustrates that, that people tend to function best, at least when they assume that people are doing their best. And she asked, what would, what would it change? How would it change your approach or your attitude or your relationship to other people if, if you just gave them the benefit of the doubt and assumed that they were doing their best with what they have at the time? So the thought process would be this. Let's all try to imagine a person who we don't think is doing their best. Someone who really bothers us or annoys us or is a real big problem in our life. And then imagine what would change if this morning God came to us very personally and very clearly and gave us like an insight and said, no, they're doing their best. I know it's hard for you to fathom. I know it's hard for you to imagine. But they're doing the absolute best that they can at this moment. For many of us, the first reaction would be we'd maybe find some more compassion or some more empathy for that person. Maybe it would be a little easier to forgive, to try to help instead of being mean or judgmental towards. For a lot of people, it, it becomes easier to draw boundaries and say, okay, if that's the best you can do, then, then I can't let you treat me like this. Treat my children like this. But I acknowledge that, that you're, you're doing your best in that, that aspect. What happens to, to many of us is we build up a lot of assumptions about other people and about what they've been through, what, what makes them like, how they are, what contributes to the decisions that they make and the attitudes that they have. And oftentimes those assumptions are wrong just because Life is complex. Human beings are complex. We never know quite really the full story of, of the people around us. 
most of us have probably been in that situation where someone casts judgment towards us and our response was, I'm doing my best. Like I can remember um, for, for a very long time having like a very kind of hard-lined opinion about people who adopt pets, people who rescue pets, right, should be prepared for all of the craziness that's going to come along with adopting those pets. And it's highly irresponsible to adopt a pet and then have to give it back, right? I mean, this contributes to the problem. And yet there came a time in my life where a pet that we had adopted because of circumstances that were not predicted had to be given back. We had to work and find a new home for that pet. And all of a sudden, where previously, if a group was, was talking about this, I would have been like amening and nodding, like, yeah, those people. I'd be like, no, you don't understand. I, I was doing my best. The, if, if you knew the story, right? I mean, if you, if you really could empathize with what was happening in that situation. We build these us and them narratives. We talk about those people. And a lot of spiritual trauma, spiritual abuse in the church happens when we start talking about those people. Assuming those people aren't here among us. Assuming we might never be those people. And the beliefs we adopt, the assumptions we adopt, they they can make it harder for us to be compassionate towards people, to have empathy towards people to be forgiving towards people, to be helpful towards people. And, and it can be even harder if that person is struggling with something that we don't struggle with or we're not familiar with. Often the most dangerous those people type of talk is something that we're not familiar with. And for so long in the church, um, when church leaders would talk, uh, conservative church leaders at least would talk about um, gay and lesbian people. They, they'd say they, they made a choice. They chose their sexuality. And they were right, assuming that those people weren't also sitting in their crowds, which is a, a, not a great assumption. And then over the last couple of decades, as stories have been shared, even the most conservative now religious leaders tend to go, okay, yeah, maybe there wasn't a point where they just chose that. Maybe it's a little more complex. I'm, I, I, have no, I don't know what that's like. That's, that's a different type of struggle than I have. It's a different type of experience than I'm familiar with. And it can be harder to to challenge our assumptions or beliefs about people who are hurting us. I mean, if there's a type of person that's, that's hurting us, causing us pain, it, it becomes even harder to really unravel some of the assumptions we have that might not be true, some of the beliefs we have that might not be helpful. But this is indeed the task in front of us as Christians. In Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that you and I have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness because he was tempted like we were in every way and yet was without sin. The God that we worship, the God that we serve, is a compassionate God. It's a God who, in Christ, in the incarnation, embodies empathy. He knows what it's like to experience what you're experiencing. In fact, the scriptures say there's not one person in the universe ever who's going through something who Jesus can't honestly and purely and truly say, I know what that feels like. I know it. I know what it feels to wake up like that. I know what it feels to be in a relationship like that. I know what it feels like to struggle or be tempted with that. And so the the call for you and I as Christians is to grow in our ability to be compassionate like Christ, to be empathetic like Christ. And when we do that, 
what we'll see is our ability to bring healness and wholeness and peace and reconciliation and restoration to others will grow as well. And, and we'll see a more flourishing ministry like the one Christ embodies in the Gospels. We've been starting a, a conversation about mental health here at the church. And we started a sermon series on it last week. And I want to continue that this morning by unraveling some common myths or assumptions or beliefs that Christians have propagated about mental illness or psychological disorders or psychological distress. And, and I want to do so as one way of growing in our empathy, of growing in our compassion, the way we've been called to as, as Christians. Because for some of us, these type of struggles, they're unfamiliar to us. We don't know what they're like, and so it can be hard for us to be compassionate or of empathy. Or for some of us, Someone who's struggling with something like that, like that has, has hurt us or is hurting us. We're relating to it in a difficult way, and it can be hard to really try to understand and have compassion and, and empathize. And so as we unravel some of the assumptions that aren't always necessarily true, some of the myths that get thrown out there in Christian circles, we can grow in our level of empathy. To do that, I want to use a, a story um, from the Scriptures. And so if you turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, First Kings is where we'll be this morning. We'll look at the prophet Elijah, a moment in the, the life of the prophet Elijah. I've heard it said that, that one of the highest forms of spiritual abuse or spiritual trauma is when the church tries to tell a person their story for them. Or tries to give a person's story meaning over what they think their story means. And we try to narrate someone else's story for them instead of just listening to their story, receiving their story, hearing it. And the scriptures give us these narratives, and it's one of the way by reading these narratives, by trying to interact with them and, and get inside of them and understand them, it's one of the ways we can practice this, listening to a story, hearing a story, accepting this narrative on its own terms, in its own language. The prophet Elijah, particularly here in chapter 19, goes through something that as a person who has struggled with depression, I've always found to resonate with my experience. Now, before we start, it's important to have the background to this chapter. Um, in First uh, uh, Kings chapter 18, Elijah goes through one of the most infamous moments in the Israelites' history of the prophets. He has this epic showdown with the false god Baal and his false prophets. If you remember this, they go on the mountain, they set up two altars, and they're like, all right, let's have a showdown. A classic battle, one-on-one, mano-i-mano, gado-i-gado. Your altar here, our altar there. We'll see which God responds. And and they start praying, and they start trying to get the attention of of their God. And if you remember the story, Elijah gets kind of smart-alky about it, right? I mean, he's really in his level. He's really in his pocket here. He's taunting them, and he's mocking them. Then God shows up for Elijah. Different situation, Elijah then slaughters the false prophets, and you have this huge victory, right? I mean, in the life of a prophet, this is about as high as you get. I mean, this is superstar status. This is, I mean, you're preaching to 80 campuses and 80,000 people. This is a high of a high. And then immediately afterwards, in, verse, in chapter 19, verse 1, we're told this. Ahab, the king at the time, told Jezebel, kind of the... The, the wicked pagan queen, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. <clears throat> then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, 
So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So she makes a threat to Elijah. She puts a 24-hour clock on his life. Verse 3, then he was afraid. Seems right. He was afraid. Seems appropriate. He rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, you might imagine what might be going through your mind at this moment. I mean, you, you think you've reached this peak moment. You think you've won this, this huge victory and things are about to change. And then in the course of a short period of time, all of a sudden, you're now on the run for your life. And you're probably at, at least a little disoriented, right? I mean, what's going on? What's my status? What is God about to do in this, in this place and in this time? Verse 4, he, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. In just a short amount of time, he now thinks he's not worth it. I'm no better than the ones who came before me. I'm not made a difference. He's depressed. He's full of despair. He's suicidal. He has to die. Now, I can relate to this. I don't, I don't know if any of you can, whether you struggle with depression or not, but this feeling of there being a high followed by a low. So often in my own life, spiritual highs are often followed by these, these lows. And so I experience some big moving of God or, or some really awesome thing that happens, and then it seems like that is followed by a crash. And I find myself in this darker place in the wilderness. Elijah, verse 5, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Now, he's probably too sad to realize this, but Elijah's living out everyone's dream at this moment, right? He just woke up, and an angel had baked a cake. He woke up to a cake, and he ate the cake. and went back. It was a pre-nap. It was a mid-nap cake, right? I mean, he didn't wake up, eat the cake, go about his day. He woke up, ate the cake, went back to sleep. Some of you are following with me on this. This is a dream scenario. He goes back to sleep. The angel of the Lord comes again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. Second cake, I'm assuming, for the journey is too great for you. Then he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. We'll talk next week about what we might do if we find ourselves struggling from symptoms of depression or anxiety and things like that. Um, rest and nutrition is not a bad way to go about it. I think you see that here in the story with Elijah. Sometimes taking a nap is a, a very faithful, worshipful thing to do. I mean, sometimes that's what's called for in the life of discipleship. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel. They've forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek to take my life, to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. 
And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face on his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Behold, a voice came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, Again, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Heziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah be put to death. Shall Elijah put to death? Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth has not kissed him. Now, what's happening here, and, and with some confusing names, perhaps, is God is responding to, acknowledging, and in a very gentle way, restoring Elijah, responding to his concerns. God passes by, and there's this great wind that's blowing rocks apart, and yet God's not present there. He doesn't want to speak through that event. And there's an earthquake yeah, that's not what God is wanting to use here. And then there's this fire. Still yet, it's not what God is wanting to use to draw close to Elijah with. It's a, it's a soft whisper. And then when he shows up, notice the lack of judgment here, the lack of critique, criticism. He, he simply says, I acknowledge your exhaustion. Here's who's going to follow you. I get that you're tired. Here's, here's who's going to succeed you. He says, I get that you feel like you're alone and no progress has been made, but look around, there's, there's people who haven't yet worshipped falsely. You have made a difference. He meets Elijah in his needs. Now, if you read popular Christian literature, if you talk to Christians about their experience with mental health or with the church and with hearing about mental health in the church, um, there are three kind of myths or beliefs or assumptions that get thrown out about people who struggle with mental health that are either partly true or untrue and at some level harmful, potentially harmful or dangerous that I want to kind of unravel in our attempt to be more empathetic and compassionate as Christians this morning. The first one is that mental health, mental illness, is primarily or solely a spiritual issue. You might hear something like this. Someone who's depressed or anxious lacks faith. They're not truly believing the promises of God. They're not truly placing their faith or their hope or their trust in God. Because if so, they wouldn't be so worried. If so, they wouldn't be so sad. Someone who's depressed and who's feeling worthless isn't finding their identity in Christ. Because if so, how, how could one come to a conclusion like this? And the assumption that is made here is that when someone struggles with the mental illness or psychological disorder or even just an amount of distress like this, most usually depression and anxiety, although there are a lot of other type of disorders like this that get stigmatized, that are hard to sometimes be compassionate and empathetic about, schizophrenia, bipolar, trauma-related mental illness, relational, attachment-related mental illness, neurological, Alzheimer's, dementia. It's a wide spectrum here. But the assumption is it is primarily a spiritual thing, and, and often, because of that, that, there's a spiritual failing at the root 
of why someone's experiencing the symptoms that they are experiencing. Now, imagine being someone who's depressed or overcome with anxiety. It's not hard for me to imagine in hearing something like this and what that might do to you. Make you wonder what's wrong with your faith. Now, if true, right, this is a gift. This is a, a chance for you to repent. This is a chance for you to really work through what you believe and, and why you believe it. But if not true, hypothetically, we can imagine how this could be very, very harmful. Very, very, very harmful. Like telling someone who's paralyzed because of an accident that if they prayed harder, they'd be able to use their limbs, right? You say, no, that's just irresponsible. That's just not kind much less than true. Well, sometimes it seems this is what's happening when the church kind of throws out statements like this that have this assumption at its root. What we know about mental illness is that it's a very complicated disorder. All these different variety of disorders are very complicated. But we know that they involve at some level, most of them, kind of a biological aspect. Biomedical biochemical. We often talk about the physical body and then the mind. Well, the scientists would want to explain to you that, that even the mind, the brain, it's a physical organ. It's powered on electricity and chemicals, and if either of those go off, you experience things that often seem like spiritual issues. We can do this to you. I mean, scientists can come up with a chemical and they can give it to you and make you feel certain ways. And it's not because you prayed a certain way or didn't pray a certain way. It's just because the chemistry changed or the electricity changed. Something shifted in your body. But there is a, there is a tendency, and some Christians have spotted this and kind of gone the other way. There's a tendency to kind of focus all on the medical aspect and act like there's no other aspects involved. And that's not true either. There are psychological components, just ways of thinking. Relating to others. There are social components. There are even cultural components. There are some aspects of culture that can lead a group of people collectively towards more mental health or dishealth. And sure, there are spiritual components. I'm a pastor. I'm a person who believes God's involved in, in everything. There's, there's nothing that I would say that exists that doesn't have a spiritual aspect to it. And, and we can say this, like all human beings, like all of life, it's so messy and complex, right? Just because something caused something, perhaps, just because the cause of something perhaps wasn't spiritual in nature, it doesn't have a spiritual effect. Does that make sense? Like, like you could get hit with a bowling ball in your leg and break your femur, and then that can affect your relationship with God. That can affect your prayer life or how you relate to people in your community. But no one would then say it was a spiritual reason, right? Something wrong with your faith that led to this, this femur break. The variety, the, the causes of, of mental illnesses is, is, is um, multiplex. There's, there's even genetic factors um, that go along with this. And to, to say that simply experiencing mental illness um, can be brought down to simply a lack of faith, I think, is um, disingenuous at best and um, just ignorant at worst. Even here in the story with Elijah, notice what does God do first when he addresses Elijah in his situation? He addresses Elijah's most basic bio biological needs. 
He, he never questions his faith here. He says, sleep some. Your body has certain needs. It has to function a certain way. Eat some. There's a holistic aspect. The Apostle Paul is sometimes marshaled for, for this type of thinking. Paul in, in the New Testament gives commands that seem pretty broad and seem pretty unreachable for those who struggle with mental illnesses. So he'll say things like, be joyful in all circumstances. He'll say, I've, I've learned the secret to being content in every situation, not having anxiety in the good times and the bad times when I have a lot and when I don't have a lot. And we go, see, there it is. I mean, it's pretty simple. You either follow Christ and you believe that and you experience that or you, you don't. And I can say from personal experience, the kind of cognitive dissonance that comes from reading a passage like that and then being overwhelmed with depression or anxiety. I mean, like, well, it's just not that simple in my experience. My, my story right now is just not simple. I'm, I'm doing my best. And it's not working out like that. If you look more closely in the New Testament, you find that Paul, like you and like me, and like illness, is a complex person, a complex being. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about a point in his ministry where he was so overwhelmed and full of despair that he says he despaired of life itself. He comes to this Elijah moment where he doesn't know or doesn't know if he wants to keep going. Somehow we've got we've to allow both of these things to exist. The Apostle Paul to encourage and command Christians to seek contentment and seek joy, and yet also allow it to be a true Christian experience for those who follow Jesus to have these moments of intense suffering and struggle and despair. Another one that gets thrown out a lot, the, the second myth, assumption, belief that we build up. You notice that all of these subtly kind of place the blame on those people or on the other. It kind of makes us feel a little safer, like we could diagnose and, and figure out the cause, and then we know why we're not suffering that, why we can avoid that. Carl Jung, the psychologist, once said the, the best way to, to help someone else's darkness is to be familiar with your own darkness. Often we, we push away verbally, socially, even physically, those people who remind us that we're vulnerable and we're broken, that things bad might happen to us too for reasons that aren't so always easy to understand. The second assumption, belief, myth, we'll, we'll talk about this just two, three. The second of the three is that mental illness is inherently wrong or sinful or non-Christian because at its root, it's and this is something that, that I've never actually been told myself, but we had a, a discussion among our community group this last Sunday night uh, about mental illness and, and talking to some more people about the week. Um, I've heard from people who've said, I've actually been told this directly, that, that I'm, I'm just being selfish, right? I'm only thinking about my problems. I'm only thinking about what's wrong in my life, and that's why I'm depressed. And I'm only thinking about what might go wrong in my life, and that's why I'm anxious. And selfishness is wrong in the scripture. We should be other-focused. We should be focused on other people. And then even beyond that, science and research has borne this out. If we can focus on God or on other people, it often relieves symptoms of mental illness. So if, if you can practice gratitude, 
Figuring out what you love from God and what you love in your life, it often helps with depressive symptoms and anxious symptoms. And if you can serve other people or volunteer other people, taking your mind off of your life and focusing into helping others, that often does relieve depressive symptoms and anxious symptoms. But again here, we've got to be careful not to make things so simple that are actually complex. Just because something relieves a symptom doesn't mean we can reverse engineer it to then be the cause of what produced those symptoms. Let's use an analogy, a burn patient. I've never experienced this, but I'm told that you become like a thousand percent more selfish when your leg is on fire. That you really could care less about anyone else than about their problems or their concerns or their situation when you have flames engulfing your leg. It's self-focused. Because, now, you would probably not say that, that's not selfishness in like a sinful or disobedient way. That's self-focus. That's an appropriate response. To a, to a moment of acute pain or struggle, you'd say that's probably helpful. That's probably healthy. And yet we might have a hard time saying that about someone with mental illness. Perhaps it's not all that different. We also know burn pain. Doctors will tell you burn pain is one of the hardest types of pain to treat. Some of you in our hardest drugs have a hard time really getting at this. And so they've been experienced. I mean, the great thing about medicine, right, and science is we're coming up with new things all the time and so much promise is being shown in so many different ways. They've come up with virtual reality technology that they use in burn wards. And by engrossing people in a situation other than their hospital room and their, their burns, their wounds, what they find is that time spent kind of distracting themselves, so it's a distraction technique, lowers their levels of pain. Now, now no one would probably ever look at that research and go, well, once they distract their minds, they don't experience pain as much, so they must be feeling pain because they're selfish. Right? We see how silly that logic works there. Just because something might relieve some symptoms doesn't mean you can then say the opposite of that then created those symptoms. I mean, again, maybe it's the most appropriate thing in the world for someone who's feeling this way to be focused on what they're feeling, trying to solve it, trying to fix that, that problem. When God turns up to Elijah, he doesn't say, why are you being so selfish? Why are you only worried about this situation? You not know that there are all these other people around you. No, he goes, I, I, I realize this. Christ the high priest says, I, I can sympathize in this weakness here. I know what it is like. If you think about last week, we, we talked about just the kind of language we use to describe things that seem more physical, that we're more aware of, versus things that seem more invisible or mental. We, I asked the question, who here has been to kind of a walkathon or fundraiser or awareness-raising event for cancer versus one for, like, depression, right? And obviously one's much more common than the other. Think even about the language we use to describe people who um, live with certain types of illnesses. What are the words we use to describe cancer patients? Strong, brave, courageous. Even when they say they don't feel or look or act strong, brave, or courageous— because we know how hard it is. 
through personal experience or someone close to us, we can empathize with the amount of pain they must be in. It makes it seem like they may be closer to doing the best that they can. I mean, I wonder if we could imagine a world where people with disabling or paralyzing mental illnesses, we describe them in those ways. It's a person who struggles with schizophrenia, but that's a, that's a brave person. What a courageous person that is. What a strong person that is. I have a good friend of mine who struggles with similar things that I do. And she says all the time, and I like it, selfishly, it kind of boosts my ego a little bit. She says all the time, if people really knew how I felt inside, they would think I was a freaking superhero. <laughs> like, if you really knew how I felt when I woke up, the fact that I'm here right now, she would say, would blow your mind. I mean, you would think, my gosh, what kind of strength and power has this woman found? If you'd realize how broken I feel, the way I'm able to treat you, you would think, I just don't understand. And often people with mental illness will say, I wish there was something wrong on the outside. Like, I wish my leg was all mangled up or something in a way where people could see and, and understand a little more easy. Where when I was going, I don't know how I'll get in there because my wheelchair won't fit and everyone understands so they can see it. Where then I don't get called selfish and be told to stop focusing on my own needs and problems. Maybe I'm in this moment of acute pain and distress and struggle as well. This leads us into the third and last one we'll, we'll talk about this morning, which is that oftentimes it's suggested that mental illness results from some type of sin in a believer's life. And there is language in the scriptures that sometimes might suggest this type of thinking. This actually is very common in most of the kind of popular Christian um, best-selling work out there that touches on mental health. Repentance is prescribed as the intervention for depression or anxiety. It kind of goes hand in hand with both of the first two that we've talked about. Now, this is challenged, obviously, by a lot of things in Scripture. The book of Job stands out as a challenge here. Job has his life destroyed, experiences despair and depression. And we're told very clearly and throughout the entire book, Job had done no wrong. There was no sin you could trace this back to in Job's life. Later on in Scripture, more towards the New Testament, we're told actually sometimes, paradoxically, suffering can be the result of faith. It can be your faithfulness to Jesus that results in suffering. So whereas before you might have looked at someone on a cross and quoted a verse from the Old Testament and said, that person wants to be cursed because only those who are cursed hang on a cross. Now you might look at someone on a cross and say, that person must be following Jesus. Jesus said, when you follow me, you'll pick up your cross and come after me. But perhaps now following Jesus, I think Paul would probably resonate with this when he says, no, in my own ministry, as I try to reach other people, I came to this point of despair. It wasn't my lack of obedience that led me to this experience. It was, it was my very obedience that led me to experience this. Now, there are surely times when something that we have done, a sin in our own lives, does cause us anxiety and guilt, or does cause us to be depressed. I don't think many people would really question that, Right? But that's a far cry from then assuming we can universalize that experience to say that every moment of anxiety or every moment of depression, every experience of these negative emotions 
must be traced back to some particular sin that must be repented of. This is even more dangerous when it comes to religion because a lot of the mental health issues we've mentioned sometimes come with feelings of an obsession over guilt. Feelings of excessive guilt. And so for a non-religious person, they might spend their whole day going through, what have I done wrong? Why am I feeling this way? What have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? Going through all the things they've ever done wrong to other people in their lives and trying to figure out why they're experiencing what they're experiencing. To a religious person who's told that they're experiencing that because of a sin in their life, can you see how this like exponentially amplifies a symptom of their illness? And you have clinical psychologists will say, we see religious people who come in here and they spend every second of every day cataloging every sin they've ever committed, trying to find which one is the one that's caused them to end up in my office and how and why they need to repent of it. I mean, it's just not healthy. It's just not right. It's just not, I think, the accurate approach that, that you and I should take here. Research actually indicates those who believe religiously that God is punishing them, their, their experience is a, a, a experience of punishment, have a harder time coping with their illness and recovering in a healthy way. And, and those who believe God is loving and is concerned about them and wants to and is able to help them have a much more positive outlook in terms of recovery and healing and wholeness. When we unpack some of the things we say some of the things we believe, some of the assumptions that we have, this can actually be an act of radical empathy or compassion. This can be a way of trying to understand and love and be kind to someone who experienced something that we don't experience, that we have a hard time relating to. It can be a way of trying to come closer to someone who might be hurting us and we might be having a hard time relating with or understanding them because of the hurt or pain or confusion that they're causing us. It can be a way of, in a sense, apologizing for the way a certain community has caused harm to a, a group of people, to a certain specific population in the past. You and I as Christians are called to become more compassionate, become more empathetic, like Christ. And, and part of that means we're going to have to rethink the things that we say and the reasons we say them, the context in which we say them. We're going to have to be willing to reconsider things if we find out that they're harmful or if they're untrue. We're going to have to be willing to let go of our own beliefs, assumptions, or opinions and be more opened up to the possibility that maybe we would hear from God, and if God really opened up a vision for us to see that person, someone who might just seem angry or lazy or sad or like a worrywart or just paranoid, that God might actually go, they're doing their best. Instead of standing in judgment or anger or unforgiveness, maybe instead you should reach out in compassion and in love. Maybe instead you should offer healing 
Maybe instead he should work towards healthy boundaries for all the parties involved. The truth is, even in a church as small as ours, it's almost impossible to talk about those people without talking in the presence of those people. We just might not know it. This is why we've got to be compassionate with our words. That's why we've got to think deeply even about easily held or widely held beliefs, narratives, or assumptions. But there's great possibility here. There's great encouragement here because it doesn't take that much hard thinking. It doesn't take that much unraveling for us to grow and become a more compassionate, more empathetic people who look and reflect more like the one we worship and the one that we follow and who are able to live in and create an atmosphere for a community of people who find healing and forgiveness and wholeness from that God. Will you pray with me?